How many of you have ever run a race before? You want to just admit that you've done that? It doesn't have to be recently, but just, okay, so many of us, good. Uh, even 100-yard dashes, those qualify as running a race. Uh, 5Ks, how many of you have run a 5K before? Good, great, we should do a church 5K. Now everyone's like, yeah, nope, just kidding, haven't done that. Uh, 10K, that's 6.2 miles, several of you. Uh, half marathons, that's 13.1 full marathons for you crazy people. Uh, and I am actually one of the crazy people. I've never done a marathon, but I enjoy running. I find it therapeutic. And you're like, I knew something was a little goofy about you. Yes, that's true. I enjoy running. But no matter what your opinion about running is, I believe that all of us, maybe with the exception of one or two people, but most of us will think that the people who sign up for these races are actually crazy. Because I want to share with you the world's five longest running races. The first one, going from, uh, we're going to increase in length here as well, is the Spartathon. Spartathlon, maybe, is a better pronunciation. And you could probably guess that this is in this, the country of Greece. This 153-mile race traces the route of the ancient Greek hero Pheidippides, who ran from Athens to Sparta to ask for help against the Persians in the time before Christ. And if, if 153 miles wasn't hard enough to run, the, the runners have to do and finish the course in 36 hours, which is four and a half miles an hour if you run 36 hours straight. I don't advise running 36 hours straight, but you can, I guess. The second one is close to us. The Grand to Grand Ultra starts at the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and then it goes for 170 miles through Utah to finish at the summit of the Grand Staircase Rock Formation. And there's about 19,000 feet of elevation gain as you run through that. And it's mostly desert, so it's not like even great views. It's just out there. You can see this guy has his shoes off. He's got his hands in his shoes, and he's trying to crawl up a sand dune. Again, not my idea of a great run, but I guess for some people it scratches their itch. Now, if you thought 19,000 feet of elevation was a lot, this next one over in the country of South Wales has 51,000 feet of elevation gain. That's almost twice up and down Mount Everest for some context. Uh, and this one is called the Dragon's Back. Definitely has the coolest name. And this is a mountain course that winds from north to south Wales, 186 miles long, as I said a moment ago, 51,000 feet of elevation gain. This guy looks like he's on the edge of the world as he's running it trying not to fall to his death. The next one, this is the second to last here, is called the 6633 Arctic Ultra. 350 miles into the Arctic Circle. Runners have 191 hours to complete the race. That's 191 hours to run 350 miles. Um, you can see on the screen that the guy is actually running, you know, in full winter gear, like you would go out to snowblow your driveway in the winter. That's what he's running in. And uh, you notice what's behind him? Those are all of his supplies. He's pulling them on a sled. Crazy, right? Temperatures dip to about 25 below zero with wind gusts up to 40 miles an hour. The, the finisher photos are hilarious because any guy that has a beard, it's like frosted over with icicles hanging from his face. Again, not my idea of a great run. But the last run is just blows everything else out of the water as far as distance goes. It's called the Self-Transcendence 3,100-mile race. And yes, that's 3,100 miles that these people run. It was founded by a Hindu spiritual teacher who believed that ultra-distance running helped gain enlightenment. 
more power to you, I guess. This race takes over a month to complete, but the catch is that the course is a simple city block in Queens, New York. So runners literally run laps around a high school and ball field 50 days in a row to gain 3,100 miles. That's the same distance as driving from Miami to San Francisco. That one's just foolish. Okay, I can see the attraction, kind of a twisted attraction to some of the other ones. This one, just, I don't get it all. And with all of these races, it's not the physical that's the most difficult. It, it's probably the mental, especially this one. You're running laps around the same ball field. I mean, people grow old while you're doing that. That's mental. That's a mental race. Now, the Bible compares the Christian life to a race in several places. 1 Corinthians 9, Hebrews chapter 12, and then right here in our text, Philippians chapter 3. And because the, the race imagery is really woven into this text, we're going to use this as kind of a, a, a running metaphor through the message today. Let's start by rereading our text this morning and looking at verses 12 through 16 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or laid hold of, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And in this passage, Paul shares with us his driving passion in life his overarching goal, his big idea, the thing that he gives his entire life to. And he says it in verse 13. This one thing I do. One thing that everything else in his life comes back to. And that one thing is to pursue Jesus with everything he has. I press toward the goal, he says. Paul's example should challenge us to pursue Christ with all of our strength to pursue Christ with a single-minded focus. And, and the running metaphor actually helps us to picture what that's like. And this is one of those topics I feel that I need to be, to be sitting under regularly. I've wrestled with this text this week and thought, wow, there's just so much in my life that needs to change so that I can run better. And we need to be challenged about this on a regular basis because it's far too easy for us to become spiritual multitaskers kind of dabbling in something over here and dabbling over something over here and pursuing Jesus, but kind of trying to keep a bunch of plates spinning in the air. And that, that mindset of, of a multitasking spirituality is totally foreign to the Apostle Paul. He says, this one thing I do. That's a sobering reality. Because for many of us, we couldn't say with all honesty, one thing I do. Or we would say one thing I do, but it's not to pursue Christ. Over time, it's so easy to let some other pursuit capture our hearts and we forsake Christ for something else. And so we need to be reminded of the truths of Scripture, to be challenged again and again to make Jesus the one thing our life is about. And so I have two questions for you this morning as we dive into our text. First, a simple one. Will you make Jesus 
your life's mission. In other words, will you echo Paul's words and say that pursuing Christ is the one thing you are committed to do? The second question is this. Once you've made that decision, I hope for the positive, will you pursue Jesus like you never have before? Will you say, okay, Maybe I'm going to start pursuing Jesus for the first time, but I'm going to pursue him like it's my last. Maybe you've been in the Christian, the Christian race, to use that analogy that we'll use many times. Maybe you've been in the Christian race many years. Will you commit to running like you've never run before? To make the next stretch of time in your life the greatest pursuit of Christ that you've ever had? In these verses, Paul lays out five actions that show us how to pursue Jesus. And the first one is actually found in verses 7 through 11. And it's this, identify your goal. In running a race, the goal is the finish line. Crossing that finish line is what matters the most. If you don't cross the finish line, you have a little three letters next to your name, DNF, did not finish. That's not what you set out to do when you enter a race. You try to finish. There are a couple of races out there. We don't have time to get into these, but there are a couple races that actually don't have a finish line, and basically it's a test of endurance to see who can last the longest. That's also nuts. Because for me, I want an objective. I want a goal. I want something that I can accomplish and say, okay, there's the finish line. There's where I'm heading. Because without knowing what the goal is, the race becomes pointless, right? It's like running on a treadmill, and there's no end in sight. It's frustrating. How frustrating would it be to be told to run without knowing where the finish line is? Paul is extremely clear here. He wanted to become like Jesus and live for Jesus. In a word, his goal is to become Christ-like, to reflect Christ in everything he does, whether that's in character or in thought or in action, to develop and to, dis to display Christ-likeness in every aspect of his life. And in verses 12 through 14, we see the hint at this goal, but it really builds on verses 7 through 11, where we see this idea of Christ-likeness explained. Paul shares four actions in these verses, and I know Pastor preached on this last week, so we're just going to move through it quickly. Paul shares four actions that help him define his goal and strive for Christ-likeness. The first step to becoming Christ-like is to value Jesus above everything else. If you look back at verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ. Well, what things? It's all the things he listed in verses 4 through 6. It's his family lineage. It's his righteous status as a Pharisee amongst other people. It's the fact that he was a religious elite, a scholar of scholars. He says all these things that are gains on that side of the ledger, I count as loss so that I can win one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as a dung heap, that I may gain Christ. The language of wins and losses is throughout these two verses. He says loss three different times. What's his point? His point is that he is willing to put everything in life that holds earthly value on one side and put Christ on the other and turn away from everything else that everyone says has value to gain Christ. Do we value Christ like that? The second thing Paul does to strive for Christ-likeness is he places his identity in Jesus, verse 9, and be found in him. Paul's identity has become reconciled, united to Jesus. 
That means that the Lord Jesus Christ defines reality for Paul. And the greatest truth about him then is not that he is a Pharisee. It's not that he is a scholar. It's not that he is a missionary. It's not that he is a husband or a father or, or, or fill in the blank, a tent maker. The greatest thing about Paul now is that he is in Christ, that he belongs to Jesus, that his sins are forgiven, and that Christ is the Lord of his life. Christ has given Paul his own righteousness, so now Paul's life is bound up in Christ. So to become Christ-like, we value Jesus above everything else, we place our identity in Jesus, and then we strive to know Jesus intimately. This is in verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And this is not just book knowledge that we can kind of read and then come to a book discussion and have a nice, clean, clinical moment with each other. This knowledge is an intimate knowledge of the glorious beauty of our Savior to enter his very heart, to come to him and find rest for our souls. Paul longed for this type of knowledge. He wanted to share with Christ and fellowship with Christ, even if that led him into hardship and suffering. And then Paul says to be Christ-like, he wanted to be conformed to Jesus completely in verses 10 and 11. The ultimate end to all of these desires was to become completely like Jesus. As Romans eight twenty nine says, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And so this goal then for the spiritual race is crystal clear. It's right here in the text. To know Jesus, to walk with him, to become like him, to give my life completely for him. And so the first stage of the Christian race is not running, it's actually defining our goal. Have you defined your goal? Is is this your life's mission? Is this the end to which you are striving day after day to become like Christ? Your purpose in life and my purpose in life is to develop and display the character of Jesus for the glory of God. Have we embraced our purpose? Or have we substituted something else in for that? So the first step to running the Christian race, to pursuing Christ like we never have before, is to get clear on our goal. And there's no progress in the Christian race if your purpose is something different. But once the goal is identified, now we can grow, now we can run, and now we need to adopt the right mentality. This is in verses 12 through 13. Running is not just a physical activity. It takes mental strength as well. It takes the right mindset in running. The best runners adopt the right mentality to help them win and run well. In April of 2015, uh, There were three colleges that met for a collegiate track meet, Oregon, Kentucky, and Washington. And in one of the races, the 3,000-meter steeplechase, an Oregon runner by the name of Tangue Pepoy, I think he's French, he led the field through the entire race. I think he was the favorite to win. But down the home stretch, he did the unthinkable. He started to celebrate early. In fact, if you watch the video, he turns to the crowd away from the finish line and starts waving his arms to get the crowd pumped up, and they start responding to him. The crowd noise increases, and he thinks they're cheering for me, but they weren't cheering for him. They were trying to warn him that someone was catching him. Washington runner Marin Simon was bearing down on him, and it's too late. Here he is in the white jersey, waving for the crowd, not looking at the finish line, doing what he should never have done. What do you notice about the Washington runner in purple? He is dead set on that goal. He's like, I'm going I'm to beat this guy. I'm going to catch him. And he does. The Washington runner 
beat the Oregon runner by a tenth of a second. And the video is just, go Google it later, don't do it now. Uh, it's incredible because he starts slowing down, he's jogging, and then he sees just a minute too late and he stumbles and he can't quite get to the finish line fast enough. That's the wrong mentality in running. A runner's mentality can win or lose a race, and the Christian's mentality can help us or hinder us in our running. If we have the wrong mindset about our race, we're going we're gonna to struggle to run well. Paul shares four keys in verses 12 and the early part of verse 13 to having the right mentality in pursuing Jesus. The first thing he says is that you have not already reached your goal of Christ-likeness. Paul says in verse 12, I have not already attained. The beginning of verse 13, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Paul does not believe that he has achieved his goal or reached his destination. And this is critical for us to understand. Because if we think we're okay in our current condition, or we think we've arrived, or at least gone far enough, we won't do anything more. Our race will slow down and we will start to be passed. The truth is that our race is incomplete. There's more track in front of us. There's more laps to go. You say, well, when does the race end? When the Lord calls us home to be with him or when Jesus returns. That's when the race ends. So as long as we are on this earth, we have a goal of pursuing Christ-likeness. To slow down our pursuit of Christ would be just like this Oregon runner, this collegiate runner taking his foot off the gas pedal. So since we've not reached our goal yet, we have to resist the pull for laziness and passivity. And we all feel it to some degree, don't we? The laziness about spiritual things or the passivity of, oh, I'll just get to that later. Have you let your time with the Lord in prayer and Bible meditation slide a bit? Have you become less zealous in fighting temptation in your thoughts? When was the last time you identified an area in your life that needed to change and you sought out verses in Scripture and accountability and, and you started memorizing these things and, and praying together and forming new habits that you could grow? I'm afraid it's so easy to become lazy or passive in our spiritual lives. But if our goal is, is still out there, then we need to keep pressing on. The second reality Paul talks about here, the second mentality is that we are not yet spiritually perfect. Second, Paul says, not that I am already perfected. Is there anyone here who never sins? Anyone? Because I'd really like to talk to you afterward because I need some tips. The reality is we all sin. We all wrestle with sin, even the most mature among us. The saints that have been walking with the Lord for 50, 60, 70 years, you still sin too. None of us are perfectly mature. Now, several sports have what they call perfect games. A perfect game in bowling is bowling a number 300, right? All strikes. All the pins knocked down the first throw. In golf, a perfect shot would be a hole-in-one. I've still to do that. Something tells me I'm never going to do that, but that's okay. In baseball, a perfect game is where a pitcher does not allow a single base runner. 27 batters come up, 27 batters get retired, 27 outs recorded. And while there may be perfect moments in sports, they're incredibly rare. I think there's only been about 23 perfect games in baseball, and there's been like 220,000 games played or something ridiculous like that. I mean, it's microscopically small. There may be perfect moments in sports, but no human being will be perfect. But how many of us 
kind of go through our day thinking that we're pretty good spiritually. We're all set. We don't really need to keep pushing forward. This, this really addresses the heart of pride that, that is latent within all of us. There is no place for, Christian pri- for uh, pride in the Christian race because humility is the soil of all Christian growth. Anything good that grows in our hearts has to be planted in the soil of humility. Humility starts when we believe that we need God, that we have much growth still to do, that we are still a work in progress because we have not arrived spiritually. The third mentality is Paul that Paul mentions is that we have been commissioned to run by Jesus. Verse 12 says, the second half, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Another way to render this phrase is this, I press on that I should win Christ because I have been won by Jesus Christ. You see, our running is a response to Christ's work in our lives. To not pursue Christ is to like discount salvation. Is to, to be a, is to have a spirit of ingratitude even that what the Lord Jesus did for us doesn't really apply to us any longer. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus has put us in the race by saving us, and now he calls us to run after him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we pursue Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that's gone before. He is our example. He is our forerunner. We could even say he is our champion in the race. And all of our running is a response to pursuing him. The fourth mentality is that you must determine to pursue the goal. And and this really is the point of decision. If you haven't reached your goal, if you're not perfect, and if Christ has put you in the race, you have a choice to make. You can either be content with your current condition, with your spiritual imperfections, with your sins, with your flaws, with your failures, or you can pursue Christ. That's really the only two options here. And Paul shows us that that the right mentality is to not think that we've arrived, to not think that we're good, to not think that we can just do whatever we want in the Christian life. He is saying that we have to be committed and determined to pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ because of these things. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 12. He says, I press on. In verse 14, I press toward the goal. It's the same word. This word press is is translated persecute back in verse 6. It's the idea that this person unrelentingly pursues the goal or pursues the target with maximum effort, with intensity. We could say it's dripping with spiritual sweat. That's what Paul does. He is zealous for the goal. He is pressing on. And this commitment to pursue the goal is often what carries us through the Christian life. I find in my own life when I sign up to run a race that I train a whole lot better when I actually put money on the line and and register for something because I know that reckoning day is coming and I don't want to get out there and die. (laughs) So I get out and train. And it, it forces me to go out even when I'd rather go take a nap or lay on the couch. Spiritually speaking, if we've never made the commitment to pursue Christ, it's going to be very difficult to stay faithful to him. That's just the reality. 2 Timothy 3, 14 says, but continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them. And to know what we've been taught is to to gain the mental understanding, but to be assured of is to actually be convinced of something. 
When I speak to teenagers, I challenge them that at some point in your life, you've grown up in Christian homes, you've been taught the truth, you have to decide that you are convinced. You have to come to a place where you say, yes, I believe it, it's true, it's mine, and I'm going to run this way, and I'm not going to look back. There are some of us perhaps here today that need to make that same decision. That you need to say, well, what am I going to spend my life pursuing? Am I tired of wasting it in in earthly pursuits, in gains that just pass away? Am I ready, by the grace of God, to say, I want Christ, and I don't care what else happens to me, and I won't do it perfectly, but I'm going to pursue Him, no matter the cost. Here's something we don't think about. If you're a believer, you are already in the race. It would be like if I signed you up to run a 5K and you didn't know about it, and I showed up to your door next Saturday morning and said, hey, we're going to go run a race. And you're like, no, I'm not. Well, actually, I signed you up. Here's your, here's your running certificate, your running number. And you put it on, and I drive you there, and we get in the starting gate, and I plop you at the starting line, and the guy says go, or the gun goes off, and everybody takes off, and you're standing there. The reality is, you're in the race. You have a number. You're registered. But are you running? Are you pursuing? Are you going after Christ? The question is not if you will run, but how well are you running? And that's where the decision has to be made. You have to determine to pursue the goal. Now, once you've done that, the running actually begins. If you're at the starting line, you say, I'm in, I'm pursuing Christ. Once you start running toward Christ, you have to do two things. You have to forget the past and strain toward what's ahead. Let's take those separately. Paul says in verse 13, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You have to forget the past. You can't worry about what's behind you or what's already happened. We all have baggage. We all have things that we failed at. But in the kindness of our God, He is merciful. And He calls us to forsake the things behind and to press toward the things ahead. Earlier this year, back in April, I entered a duathlon for the first time. A duathlon is for us crazy people. And we run, and then we get on a bike, and we ride a bike, and then we run again, just because the first run wasn't long enough. And the first run was great. The bike was fine. It was going well. And about halfway through, I went to take a drink of water, and I've got a couple of carriers on my bike, and I'm pedaling away. And then I started having a problem. My, my, my water bottle kept getting caught in my glove, and then I couldn't, and I dropped it. And there it goes rolling off the road. And you know what I thought? Well, there goes that one. I wasn't going to stop. I was in the middle of a race. Why would I stop and get a $10 water bottle? My generous wife bought me another one that same day. Why would I stop in the middle of a race to pursue something that has no meaning or no value? Or at least very little value. Looking back in the Christian life will distract us. And if we cling to what's there, and we're always looking at what could have been or what might be, we're never going to run well. So if we are going to forget the past, we have to learn first to not be content with past successes. As we grow in our Christian, Christian life, by God's grace, we will have victories in the past. There will be moments where we say, wow, God did something amazing. That was a huge encouragement. That was a big answer to prayer. That's the grace of God at work. That's the way it should be in the Christian life. There should be past victories. But our flesh will start to creep in and tempt us to rely on that for future progress. We can't 
let our guard down or take a spiritual holiday. Like in stocks and in financial terms, past performance does not guarantee future results. And if you've had spiritual growth or victory, praise God. Thank God for that. Build your faith on that, but don't rely on your future battles on what you've done in the past. Remember, we've not attained the goal. But what about failures? What about those discouraging moments in life that cripple us? And Paul is calling us to leave those behind too, to not be discouraged by past failures. To forget things behind is to not be crippled by past defeats, to not be enslaved to sins of the past, to not allow someone else's hard choice or hurtful choice continue to dictate how you run in the future. To not be discouraged about past failures means you have to let go of that decision that still haunts you. And we all have them. You talk to any saint that's been walking with the Lord that's over the age of 50, there will be things in their life that they regret, that they wish they could go back and change. But to keep pursuing Christ, they have to run forward. Here's the glorious truth. In Christ, when our identity is in Him, as Paul says earlier in this passage, in Christ, your past does not define your future. In Christ, Jesus' past defines your future. Because in Christ, all things are being made new because He doesn't look at your past and say, well, you know, you were kind of bad back then. You did a lot of sins. You did some really nasty things. He looks back at the past and says, I died for that. And now you're in me and you're forgiven. So run. Learn from the past. Avoid making the same mistakes, but keep pressing forward. Paul, even in this text, doesn't linger on the past. He quickly redirects our attention to what's ahead. He calls us in verse 14 to strain toward the goal, to press toward the mark. He says at the end of verse 13, reaching forward to those things which are before. To reach forward is another running term. It's another athletic term. To exert oneself to the uttermost. It's the idea of a runner giving everything he has as he sprints toward the finish line. And Paul here gives us three tips about straining toward the finish line. First, focus on what is ahead, the things which are ahead. Don't be distracted by your, from your goal. Don't be distracted by all the things going around you. In a race, the finish line is usually very crowded. There are a lot of people around. There are other runners coming in, but don't be distracted. In both driving, riding a bike, riding a motorcycle, where you look will be where the car or the bike goes. And if you're riding a bike and you start looking over the cliff, where is your bike going to go? <laughs> where your eyes are. So you have to keep your eyes straight ahead. In our spiritual race, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, which easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? By looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down now as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Focus on what's ahead. Second, persevere through difficulty. The, the phrase press toward the goal implies perseverance to overcome challenges. I'll let you know a little secret. Running is not comfortable. No one that I know runs because they say, I feel like all my weight is lifted off. I feel like I'm on a cloud. 
Now, occasionally, you have a runner's high, and you feel good, but when you run, it hurts. Your muscles hurt. Your knees hurt. There's pain involved, but it's rewarding. Successful runners keep moving forward through difficulty, and sometimes in the Christian life, the difficulties are inside of us, just like in a race. Sometimes we get cramps when we're running or a muscle spasm. Spiritually, we battle our sin nature that hinders our running. That's why Hebrews 12.1 calls us to lay aside the sins that easily beset us, to lay aside the weights that cling to us, to let go of those things that hinder us and slow us down in the race. At other times, the difficulties are outside of you. Runners face competition from other runners. They, they have to navigate the course. Sometimes there are steep hills or hard stretches in the middle of nowhere. Trials spiritually enter our lives. They tempt us to despair. But God's will is not that we would quit during these things. To not just pull up halfway through the race and say, well, I'm done today, and walk off. He doesn't want anyone to have a DNF. He doesn't want anyone to not finish. He wants us all to persevere, to press through the trial toward the goal. And the beautiful thing is, he gives us the grace to do that. Because we come to a hurdle, we come to a trial, and we say, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can run through that. And the Holy Spirit starts working in us. And when we make it to the other side, it's almost like we don't know how we got there. And that's God at work. God has touched down. And as a result, we have grown spiritually. Third, we keep the winner's prize in mind. What does Paul run for? He runs for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this shows us the power of proper motivation. God rewards faithful runners who finish the race. That means we have to keep our eyes fixed on what's ahead. One of the first things coaches teach young racers is to keep their eye on the goal. Don't be looking around. When a runner looks around, even for a split second, they slow down. They lose a step. And sometimes at the finish line, every second counts. And that's exactly what happened in 2017 when this photo was taken between these two runners. The man on the left, number 21, is Galen Rupp. He's an Olympic athlete. He's won a couple of medals for the U.S. Olympic team. The man on the right was also on the Olympic track and field team. His name is Leonard Carrer. And they squared off in a race in New Haven, Connecticut in 2017. And down the home stretch, Galen Rupp, the man on the left, had a two-stride lead. But Leonard wasn't going away. He charged hard. They made a mad dash for the finish line. And this is what it looked like, banging into each other, jostling, because they were straining to cross the tape first. This is the definition of a photo finish. They had to go back to the camera, and they determined that Rupp had ended up winning by a hair. You can see the strain and the determination on their faces. And, and these runners illustrate the point. They strained toward the finish line with all their effort. They weren't leaving anything left in the tank. They kept their eyes focused on the tape. And you can even see the pain and the grit in their faces. They're pushing through the hardship. They're hurting at this point, And yet they persevere. Why? Because it's fun? No, because they wanted to win. They wanted to make it to the goal. Do we want to make it to the goal spiritually? Or are we too content with the allurements and the pleasures of this life that, that running has no value for us? We have to be discontent with what this life offers us. And it, it's so hard in America because we're comfortable and we're affluent and we have everything we could think of. And the things that, 
that we want, we can order, and they're there on our doorstep the next day. We gotta run. We gotta strain. Because this life is not all there is. It's not worth it. Are you taking this type of approach in your Christian life? For example, it's a good thing to enjoy God's creation. Our family loves to go hiking. We love to go see the scenery in the mountains. But you know what can happen around Denver? The local God here is the God of recreation. The allurement of being away and in the mountains can, can start to creep into even our hearts as Christians because then we start realizing, hey, you know, if I leave on a Friday afternoon, I can come back late Sunday night and get a full two nights in, two days. Maybe if I leave late Thursday night, I can get a three-day weekend. And, and over time, it's easy to start missing church once a month or maybe even twice a month. And then our time is spent planning on how we can get away and what we're going to do the next time we get away. And, and then we start investing more and more of our wallets and money into better equipment and better activities and, and, and all the things that go with that. Now, is there anything wrong with going on a vacation? No. Is there anything wrong with going and enjoying God's scenery in the mountains? No. There's nothing wrong with skiing or hunting or fishing or hiking or cycling or whatever. But when it becomes our pursuit in life in place of Christ, it has become an idol. We have to keep things in the right order. Christ first. Christ above all. Christ always. And when we keep him in his preeminent, in his proper place, there's a beautiful thing that happens. We're actually able to enjoy the other things he gives us because we're enjoying them for the right reasons and in the right place. We're not looking to the mountains to squeeze more meaning out of them than, than God has already intended. We find meaning in God and enjoy his gifts. We don't use God's gifts to bring meaning to ourselves. Finally, in verses 15 through 16, Paul gives three encouragements that energize us through the race. Energize your running with encouragement. And during the race, if you sign up for one, there's, there's often aid stations that have Gatorade and water to keep you going. Spectators line the way to encourage you. Each mile marker that goes by is a big encouragement. Whew, another one down. Even fellow runners can be an encouragement. In fact, some news articles share tips on the best ways to encourage runners during a race. Doing things like cheering on a person using their name, calling out their name that's on their bib, and, and yelling them in support is, is actually psychologically proven to help increase motivation. To be energetic in cheering, it's a whole lot different to, to kind of be going, woo. We want people that are energetic, that are gonna, so that the runners can feed off the energy, right? Another tip is to place yourself in a hard part of the course, like on a hill, or, or, or later on in the course, not at the, fin not at the starting line. Everybody starts well. And even not at the finish line, because the finish line for a runner or a cyclist or a racer is a boost of adrenaline already. If you're running, you need help in the hard parts. The worst thing you could do is lie to a runner about what's ahead. The worst thing you could say is, hey, around that next bend, you're going to come up, the finish line's just a couple hundred feet beyond that, and they turn the corner, and there's a massive hill, and the finish line's two miles away. That's deflating. That sucks the energy out of the runner. And in this section, Paul is not going to just say, hey, guys, you're close. He's going to give us some truths, some realities that can help us to plan accurately, to be encouraged as we run the race. The first encouragement is in verse 15. Mature Christians run hard after Christ. He says in 15a, therefore let us, 
as many as are mature, have this mind. Well, what mind, Paul? The mindset of running with all your heart. Spiritual maturity is a is seen through our pursuit. A single-minded pursuit of Christ is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. This text is really straightforward and really sobering. If we don't run after Christ with all of our hearts, we are not mature Christians. We may be in church for a long time. We may be even members of a church for a long time. We may be influential in our church. But if we are not running like this, we cannot be mature. But the text is also encouraging because it gives us the secret to being a mature Christian. If you want to be a mature Christian, hopefully that's all of us in the room, we simply run. Pursue Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Obey his word. Love him. The great commandment is to love God supremely and love others sacrificially. That's what this is all about. Mature Christians run hard after Christ. Second, running together brings unity. The second half of verse 15 is a little challenging to interpret. Paul could be, uh, this is what he writes, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now there are two uh, common interpretations of this. Paul could be referring to his opponents here and washing his hands of them, kind of saying, if you disagree with me, well, you're on your own. God will show that to you. But he doesn't really call out opponents much in the book of Philippians. It seems like he's talking to those who are mature, those who think like Paul. And when these people who are mature disagree about a minor issue, God will give them the wisdom to sort it out. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he's going to revisit this and talk about Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And it seems to be that, that the point he's making here is that those who pursue the same thing in the same way will find unity together even when there's a disagreement. Because the truth is, there's an easy way to unite with other people. It's to run toward Christ together. There's great camaraderie among runners at a race. And and if you ever get into a race, yes, you're all competing against one another, but 99% of the runners know that they're not winning. Their goal is just to finish. And so there's a a great spirit. There's an atmosphere of encouragement there. I, I experience this personally. I've run a half marathon a couple of times, almost died both times. And the first time I did it, about mile 11, I really started dragging. It was 13 miles. I was like, I'm so close. I had nothing left. And there was another runner that she and I were trading back positions. I would pass her on the downhill. She'd pass me on the uphill. We'd go back and forth, just like that. And we did this a couple of times, and I can't remember who said it, if it was me or her, but one of us said, hey, why don't we finish together? And the other one was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And so the last mile, mile and a half, I'm running side by side with a stranger, I don't even know the woman's name. Why? Because we were encouraging one another. Their presence helped us to not lag and and be unmotivated. It encouraged us, and we finished as well as we could have. That's the spirit of unity we need in the local church. That when another person is struggling, we don't say, oh, wow, hey, I guess they're struggling today, and kind of skirt around them like the Pharisee and the priest with the Good Samaritan story but to run up next to them and say, I'll run with you for a stretch. I'll come alongside of you. I'll put my arm around you. I'll weep with you. I'll rejoice with you. We aren't competing against one another. We should be cheering for one another to finish each other's race well. We should come alongside each other to support one another. 
Running brings unity. And then finally, consistent running brings progress. Verse 16 encourages us to keep running after Christ. To the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The race is long and it's hard. It has valleys. It has mountaintops. But as long as the world is broken by sin, it's going to be difficult. So keep pursuing Christ. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted, Hebrews 12 says. Make progress by not quitting, by relying on the grace of God, and by staying in the race. So let's return to those first two questions I raised. Will you make pursuing Jesus your life's mission? And second, will you pursue Jesus like you never have before? Roger Bannister is the man who first broke the four-minute mile back in 1954. You can see he's exhausted there. And this was an achievement that many people thought to be impossible. But here he was, and on May 6, 1954, he clocked a three-minute, 59.4-second mile. Amazing. What an accomplishment. And 46 days later, someone else broke his record. A man by the name of John Landy, an Australian, broke Bannister's mile record with a 3-minute, 57.9-second mark. I mean, two seconds when you're running that fast is significant. So within a few months' time, the 4-minute mile had been broken twice by two different runners, and it just so happened that a month and a half later, in early August of 1954, both runners squared off in the mile race at the British Empire Games. The hype, as you can imagine, was unbelievable. It was billed as the mile of the century, and up to that point, it was. That race was going to be. And before the race, Bannister identified his goal. He, he had to beat Landy. So he shifted his mindset mentally from just trying to run a four-minute mile, from beating the clock to beating his opponent. He had to forget the past also to run well. Because what good would his sub-four-minute mile do now in the future? It's just a number on a piece of paper now. It would do no good to him. That past victory would do no benefits to him in the next race. And he also had to forget his past defeats because his record had already been broken. And if that's all he thought about, my record's been broken, he's not going to run well. So he had to forget both the good and the bad of the past. All that mattered was straining toward the finish. And each runner had their own style. Landy liked to run from the front and just push the pace, push, push, push. Bannister preferred to run with the pack and then sprint the last stretch. And when the race started, after one lap, the, these two runners started to distance themselves from the rest of the field. Landy extended his lead up to 15 yards at one point. That's huge. Bannister kind of hung around and kind of kept chipping away at the gap. He, he stuck in there. And by the last lap, Bannister was a step behind Landy. They ran stride for stride. And as Bannister readied himself to make his move, his, his trademark sprint to the finish, he, he saw the crowd's energy. He felt the crowd's energy. He was energized by the emotion of the moment. He could see the finish line rapidly approaching, and he unleashed his final move at the right time. He started his sprint perfectly because on the final turn, his opponent, Landy, broke the cardinal rule of racing. Never look back. He tried to sneak a look over his inside shoulder to locate Bannister, but it was that exact moment Bannister had moved to the other side of him, to the outside, to make a pass. Here's the famous picture. Landy on the inside trying to peek back, and Bannister's gone. 
And by the time Landy knew what happened, Bannister was out in front of him, and Bannister hung on all the way through the finish line. He won by several steps. It was the first race in history where two runners completed the mile in under four minutes. And this moment, this picture is actually memorialized with a statue. The look back. Our race may not receive this much press attention. We may not have statues memorialized to us for our Christian race. Our race may not be this exciting, but our races, every single one of our races, is far more important. Because these men were running for maybe a cash prize, dignity and fame, being memorialized in the annals of history. But what good is that if you don't gain Christ? They competed for an earthly crown, but we run for an imperishable one. So by the grace of God, let us run the race set before us, pursuing Jesus like we never have before. Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.